Welcome back to the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast. I'm Pat Stratton and I'm your host. This episode is our homecoming edition and was recorded on Easter Day, 2020, during the middle of the worldwide COVID-19 pandemic. Tough times for many around the world for sure. We hope all our listeners are safe and healthy. We feel blessed to be Americans and know we'll get through this and come out the other side strong. Hang in there. For those of you watching the president's daily COVID-19 pandemic press briefings and you're wondering who that good-looking Navy Admiral is that's frequently seen alongside the president and briefing the press on a range of topics, that's Rear Admiral John Polefchak, United States Navy. This episode is dedicated to him. John is leading our country's logistical efforts in response to this crisis. John is also a member of the Great Knapps class of 1983 and U.S. Naval Academy class of 1987, and also my roommate, youngster year, while we were in Annapolis. Those that know John sleep well at night knowing he's got our back and providing great leadership during this tough time. Shout out, Go Puff Daddy. Would love to have you on the podcast when this is all over to tell your story. I know people would love to hear all about it. The bourbon's on me, my friend. In this episode today, the Yankee Air Pirate was just released from the Wallow Prison in Hanoi, which we discussed in episode number 12, the Freedom Day episode. Now back at Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines, we'll discuss his short stay there and his trip back to California to be reunited with our family for the first time in six and a half years. So let's get right back to it. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast. risen happy easter to you my friend yeah absolutely it's good to have you guys over here today and uh feel lucky that we get an opportunity to record another podcast with you so uh, before we get started let's just do a couple lightning round questions like we usually do um a couple of different people actually wrote in and asked uh, some questions via email about our last episode the freedom day episode and they asked uh, about, was there a moment in time during the release process that you realized that it was for real and the North Vietnamese were not messing with you and you really were going to go home and, and be a free man within a couple of hours and then be home in a matter of days? What, was there a moment like that? Oh, there absolutely was. And I'll tell you exactly when. It was 20 minutes after we took off from Zhilam Airport, went feet wet, and got beyond the range of SAM missiles. And the pilot announced that we were safe and on our way, and the whole airplane was just puckered up the whole trip out until we got to feet wet and then immediately broke out in cheers. So yes, 20 minutes later, we finally figured out they couldn't screw us over, shoot us down. 
So really, uh, even up to that time when they were lining you up to get you on the airplane, you, you shook, shook the Air Force colonel's hand and they turned you over to U.S. control. They put you on the C-141. You still weren't feeling great at that point, huh? We'd been had too many times by the, the, the communist bureaucracy. We did not trust him. Okay. All right. Well, that's interesting. Um, just one other thing I wanted to ask you real quick. Uh, I, I thought it, it would be appropriate. So it, we are recording this podcast on Easter Day um, during the, the COVID-19 coronavirus stay-at-home orders. And it's been, it's been kind of rough on a lot of people. Uh, people have been at home for three weeks, four weeks, in some cases, maybe a little more. Um, can you put that in perspective a little bit from your point of view? I can only do it from my point of view. Everybody has their own burden to bear on that. But all I can think of is what Paul Galante used to say, and that is, every day is a good door when the, a day when there is a doorknob on the inside of a door. And uh, certainly being... Uh, sitting at home is no different than sitting on a 27 Charlie going across the Pacific at, at 10 knots of speed of advance. No place to go and really constricted. So we're just blessed to be alive. We're blessed to be Americans. And what more could you ask? Yeah. Well, it is serious stuff, and hopefully it'll, hopefully it'll end soon, uh, but it could be a lot worse. Uh, it, thank God we're Americans. Um, well, let's get into this now. Uh, last time we talked uh, for the Freedom Day uh, episode, you had just gotten off of the plane. You just got off of the C-141 at, at uh, Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines on March 4th, 1973. And uh, we all got to see the, uh, had the opportunity to see you get off the airplane. It's 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning in California when you did that. And um, it, it was quite a sight. So we didn't get to see anything that happened after the TV cameras were off you then. So when you get, got off the plane, uh, what, what, was, what were the first things that you guys did after you, they took you inside? Patrick, that's so prosaic, you just have to laugh and you wouldn't believe it. Most of us were bought up with the appreciation that when you're flying on a, a multi-engine aircraft and there's a head there, the first guy to do his business has to clean the head. <laughs> so <laughs> you learn on a multi-engine aircraft to hold it. So we made an immediately scream for the latrines to uh, take care of the basic necessities. It doesn't sound very grand and glorious, okay. but we hit the head. Well, how about after that? What what? What about some of the good stuff a after you made your head calls? Oh, that head call was good, too. That was All a great right. relief. But uh, first thing was uh, a medical triage immediately. Was there anybody that was bleeding, hurting? Anybody have worms coming out of their mouth, uh, out their ears? Anything needed uh, immediate medical attention? Um, and that was... Uh, each one of us went through that, and they did it very rapidly and very succinctly, and they pulled off anyone who needed immediate medical attention, and the rest of us just had appointments for the next day. And the second thing they did, what I called a spiritual triage, they had a, a couple of uh, chaplains standing around, Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, um, and if anyone needed any spiritual attention at that point in time, 
uh, or if somebody sensed that we were going to flip out or sh at that point. So I think they had some shrinks there. They would pull somebody off, and I did not see that happen at all. And amazingly enough, there was a tailor there who measured us for uh, uniforms. It seems that they had a mess of uniforms over at the Navy uh, Air Force Exchange, post-exchange, and that they were going to uh, cut them down to our size and put us in them so we didn't have to run around in pajamas, which I thought was a class act. Then they uh, told us what our room assignments were, took us, they were four men to a room. Um, we basically cleaned ourselves up, quick shower, um, uh, the four S's, and then it was time to go off to chow. And after chow, naturally, you had to hit the club and, and do the bar scene. All right, so you guys, you guys had uh, quite a time there. And so you landed at Clark Air Force Base, and I think what we were talking before, you stayed there for, at Clark in the Philippines for about three days before you actually uh, headed back to California to meet up with the family. Um, and during that time, you're, you're getting your uniforms fitted for you. Uh, I'll tell you, you, you came out of Hanoi. I know they had put a, a little bit of weight on you, but you, you still were pretty thin. What were you weighing? Somewhere between 140 and 160 pounds at that point? I was in that range, 140 to 160. In fact, I was told that that was the uh, insurance company's preferred weight for my height. Yeah, but still, I bet those uniforms they fitted to you didn't uh, end up lasting too they long. Did, they, they, they didn't last but a month, pal. So um, tell, me, tell me about that first night in the O Club. What was your first drink that night? Do well, you... my first drink in the club was a San Miguel beer. Uh, San Miguel, yeah. okay. All right, when did you get to the hard stuff? Uh, the yeah. next drink. <laughs> All right. Next drink was early times bourbon. Okay, good for you. All right, and um, so you've told me this story a lot, and, and this goes back to to your first uh, time you went into the chow hall there at Clark Air Force Base. Uh, tell me about the stories, uh, the story you've told me about the, the first meal that you wanted uh, having to do with the eggs. They had set aside the uh, cafeteria for the returned POWs, had it manned 24 hours a day. We were permitted to go through the line every four hours. And my first shot through was to obviously to get what I had been uh, lusting after in terms of food over six years. So I went up and ordered myself up a dozen scrambled eggs. Now they had a, a dietician, a young lady at the end of the line who was making sure, I guess, that we didn't eat ourselves to death or something. And uh, she told me that I couldn't have that dozen eggs, that I only could have half a dozen. I would have to take a salad and I would have to take a steak. So I, I did what I was told, but then went to the garbage can, dumped the steak and the salad, went over to the table, sat down, poured ketchup over the eggs, scoffed them down, and went back and said, now I want the other six eggs. She was a little bit upset about that, but somehow uh, it went against the myth. A red-blooded American is supposed to want, I guess, uh, steak and uh, all that kind of stuff, cowboy-type meal. All right. And then... Um 
there was a little bit more to that story because you went uh, after you had your meal, you talked to some of the other POWs about a salad bar that you had missed, and then you went back to the salad bar the next time. Yeah, and that was <laughs> so. Tell, there, there was a new dietitian on duty that, uh, at that point, and that was about four hours. Four hours after. later, right? <laughs> and so, tell tell me about uh, your conversation with that dietitian. Well, they've been talking about food. That's all we did for six years was talk about food. We were still talking about it, and they convinced me that I had missed one of the greatest deals in the world, the world's largest and most exotic salad bar. So I went back and got a tray at um, my next four-hour stint, put two dinner plates on it, and I went down and I piled a, a, a mess of salad on the two plates overflowing, got down, and this time it was a male dietitian, and, and he was bigger than me, so I had to treat him with a little bit more caution. And he looks at me, and he says, you like salad, huh? And, of course, my instant reaction was, no kidding, Dick Tracy. And I must have looked embarrassed when I kind of said that. And he said, oh, he said, don't be embarrassed. He said, some nut came through here about four hours ago and had a dozen scrambled eggs and put ketchup on it to boot. So I tiptoed away and pretended I didn't see him and didn't care. Good salad, though. All right, but they they didn't take any of your food from you. You got to eat it all, right? You betcha. I I just scoffed that down. Okay. And so we talked before uh, you actually ended up staying at Clark Air Force Base uh, for three days, and the normal protocol was to stay there for about two days uh, while they processed you, did the medical triage, and then uh, made arrangements for uh, the next flight from Clark Air Force Base back to the United States uh, to the hospital destination that was most convenient for the POW based on where their family lived. Talk a little bit about why did you stay an extra day? You, you actually ended up staying three days versus the three. What, what were you doing during that time and what was the reason for the one extra day? Well, the extra day was, was tied into actually... Uh, your mother had something to do with that on a, on the phone call that we had, um, but it was based on the Life magazine bowing picture. The press was uh, all over the returning POWs to find out was I brainwashed, was I a traitor, what happened, uh, the background for that, and nobody was saying anything. So they started spreading the rumors and uh, saying that I was being shunned by my fellow POWs and that obviously I was guilty of sin of some kind of sin. And, uh, and they, of course, part of the time in the first day you asked what had happened, they were trying to set up some time for you to talk on the phone with your family. And, and I actually, I'm glad you brought that up because I had meant to ask you that before. So when you got off the plane, you mentioned making your head call, getting some uh, cleaned up, getting some food. How long was it before you were able to call mom and get her on the phone and ha have an initial conversation with her after you got off the plane? I think it was about eight hours afterwards. At that time, of course, you didn't have cell phones and all that nifty stuff. But uh, remember, I talked about the spiritual triage. In some cases, the, the preachers had the difficult task of telling guys that uh, a member of their family had died or that they had been divorced or something like that in that spiritual triage. And uh, so they, they were at that time conscious 
of what was going on at home and how it would affect a person. So I got on the phone with your mother, like I say, about eight hours, and we were exchanging stuff, and she mentioned to me the fact that uh, the press was all over her and her associates and that the word was being spread that no one would talk to me and that uh, the pre my fellow prisoners were shunning me. And I, of course, reported that to my two escort officers. And through the public affairs office and naval intelligence and the whole crowd, decided that they would squash that uh, at the outset by arranging to hold me over with my permission, hold me over an extra day, make sure I was a senior ranking officer on the aircraft. The senior ranking officer always made remarks when he got off the airplane, the first one off and that I would present myself uh, as just a normal jock getting coming home. And so that was the reason for being held over one day. And it was a phone call with your mother that, that helped alert us to what needed to be done. Okay. And um, so while you're there, you talked about um, getting fitted for the uniforms, the medical triage and whatnot. For you personally, did they do any work? Because uh, I know you had uh, a bunch of uh, medical problems there that they ended up having to fix and, and uh, dental issues as well. Did they do any of that work on you while you're there at Clark Air Force Base, or did that all wait until you got back to the United States? And once again, uh, they decided to wait until I got back to Oaknell Naval Hospital. But that was with consultation with me and my permission. Uh, we had a couple of guys there that were missing three or four of their front teeth, and they didn't want to come home uh, gap-toothed. And they actually fitted them up with dentures overnight so that when they got off the airplane, they'd have a full set of teeth. So I had one hole in my head, and I wasn't the least bit embarrassed about that. What's one more hole? Um, so nothing had to be done. But it was done in consultation with me. Okay, so you ended up having three days there, and uh, they weren't doing a whole lot of medical work uh, for you. So really, how, how did you fill that time? Did you have a lot of beer calls over to the O Club, or did you get to visit uh, with friends a lot? How, how did you fill all that time? Well, very frankly, it was, uh, there wasn't enough time to take care of the business. One of the things we had to do was, of course, I couldn't come home empty-handed. Anytime I came home from a cruise or uh, a trip or something like that, I'd try to bring you kids something home. So I had to bring something home. And uh, so I had to root around in the exchange and come up with something uh, that would be unique, something that would be different and that you might want to keep and would remind you over the years of that homecoming and something that was special. Uh, in that my case, I picked out binoculars at seemed to me to be a nifty thing. Of course, I had always wanted one at your age, so I was just fulfilling my own childhood desires and not yours. Uh, the most of the time Patrick was spent debriefing. The first thing they were after were the names of anyone that we had seen or heard of that had been captured, shot down, en route to prison, in the prison system, um, where we got the name from, the validity of the name, uh, the reliability of the people that passed the name. Then they wanted a history of what had happened, who the, uh, the uh, anti-American peace group members were, 
that we were exposed to, that we were forced to see. Uh, they, they were basically picking up intelligence information. The yeah. most important thing were the names. And that, that's something, again, that I, I'd meant to talk to you about up front. Actually, on the, on the flight from Hanoi to Clark Air Force Base, you had told me before they, your escort officers during that flight had already started grilling you for names and they were right where they they were writing those names down as you told them or were they recording them on a tape recorder they were tape recording and taking notes at the same time yeah and it was the first thing they did they introduced themselves gave the names and said dump your memory bank so so the point with all this is that the military uh, right up front, uh, we're working very hard to get all of the names of all POWs or, uh, that you had come in contact with for the last six some odd years, and we're doing the best they could to account for every one of them. They were making every effort they could because in Korea, the Korean communists held people back. Yeah. Okay, and we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that later because there there's some real important points that I think we need to make on that. Um, but before we get there, uh, while you're still there at Clark Clark Air Force Base, uh, one of your escort officers came to you uh, one day and he told you you had a couple of visitors over in the O Club, a couple of surprise visitors. Who who were those people? That was Tom Brown who retired as a rear admiral, and uh, Dean Dynamite Kramer, who had, <laughs> who, had, who had been in the squadron with me in Beeville, Texas, and uh, again in Alameda, California. And how did they work their way there? Ah, never, never to be suppressed. Um, Tom Brown was the air wing commander, uh, and they were on board ship over at QB Point in Subic Bay, the Philippine Islands, and so he wrote Dean Kramer a set of orders and made him a member of the homecoming team. And Dean Kramer was a commanding officer of a squadron, so he wrote orders for the CAG to be a member of the homecoming team. And they got a case of beer, and they put it in a, in a blivet on the A-4. Where the heck do you fit a case of beer in an A-4? you got to squeeze yourself into those cockpits. Well, you, you don't. What you do is you get a 300-gallon tank, and you cut a hole in it and put a, a latch on it, and you put it there in a 300-gallon fuel tank and hang it underneath your belly. We call them a blivet. <laughs> so they came flying over from QB Point with a case of beer, in an external fuel tank? Yes. Uh, pretty cool. I like that. All right. And by the way, I, I, I forgot to mention to you before, so thank you for the binoculars, and I still have them to this day. I don't know if you've seen them recently, but those binoculars that you brought back in 1973, uh, I, I still have them and, and, and use them all the time. They're, they're in my boat bag that I bring out with us on our boat all the time in case I need binoculars. So. Thank you for that. It was You're a, entirely welcome. It, it was a good gift, and I appreciate that. So um, how long did uh, Dean Kramer and Tom Brown get to visit with you in the club, and, and did, you, did you wipe out the entire case of beer? <laughs> no, but you know, that's taking coals to Newcastle. Do you really need to bring beer to a, uh, an Air Force officer's club? 
but uh, the thought certainly was appreciated. Their, their visit didn't last all that long because they were unable to forge the appropriate credentials. And they were still in their flight gear. And uh, flight gear, flying in an A4, little itty-bitty A4 in tropical climates, you end up kind of ripe. And, yeah, and, and, uh, yes, and so the aroma of the A4 was permeating the officers' club, and they were discovered and basically thrown out on their keisters. But uh, I, I thought they had done a pretty good job of they each wrote a set of orders for the other, so they were legitimately there because they were on orders, were they not? Well, they were legitimately there, but they to, to protect us— uh, Actually, we thought that it was there to keep us locked in unless we terrorized the natives, but really it was to keep the press and uh, the phony people away from us. It was to protect us. So the members of the homecoming team not only had a set of orders, but they had a set of badges like you would need to get into the Strategic Air Command underground. So they couldn't pass the security test. They couldn't pass the security test. Even though they had had orders. They didn't pass the smell test, and they didn't pass the security test. All right. Well, God bless both of them for making the trip. Um, That that was pretty cool. So uh, another thing I want to talk about, and I'm really impressed by this. So you stayed there for three days at Clark Air Force Base before you end up coming home to California. And another C-141... Uh, tail number 60161 uh, flew you home uh, from Clark Air Force Base to Travis Air Force Base in California. And and what's so impressive to me is a couple of things. Number one, you have the tail number of that aircraft, which I think after all these years, that's pretty impressive that you've got it. And then you've also got listed here the there were five medical team members that were on that aircraft. I, I imagine these are all Air Force uh, flight uh, nurses uh, and, and and associated staff. You've got Captain Shirley Brooks, Captain Elizabeth Brown. So were those two Air Force nurses? That's that correct. It? Okay, and then you got a staff sergeant, a sergeant, and then two sergeants listed here, uh, Sergeant uh, Groman and a Sergeant Garcia and a Sergeant Anderhold. After all these years, how, how could you come up with that detail, and where did you get that information from? The people that uh, flew us home uh, recognized that it was a historic event, and they made sure that they kept track of the first aircraft called the Hanoi Taxi, and it's in the Wright-Pat Museum right now. And they maintained the records, the manifest records, and gave us access to them. So uh, God love those people. They not only bought us home, but they collected and protected that information. Yeah. Well, you're not in touch with any of those uh, five medical staff people are you by any chance no i am not it's it's too bad i i was just thinking to myself it'd be really fun maybe to have one of these individuals on the podcast as a guest and get their perspective on this whole event so maybe i'll investigate how to get a hold of one one of them someday so that that would be a lot of fun if by chance any of them are listening uh give us a shout we'd love to hear from you 
And then also on, on that aircraft that, that you were on, I asked you who else was on your plane. So again, you were able to provide me all the detail, all the names of the other POWs that came out with you. And there were a total of 19 of you, including yourself. And you were the senior ranking person uh, on that plane. So again, I, I think that the, the level of detail is incredible that was preserved over the years on all this. And then I've actually got a question for you that uh, we haven't talked about yet, but I, I meant to research this a little bit before you came over today, and I didn't. So you're on a Air Force C-141, and you're set to fly from the Philippines to California, but still you stopped in Hawaii for a fueling stop. So my question is, why did you stop for, for fuel in Hawaii? Can a C-141 not fly from the Philippines to California without a fuel stop or what? So what, what was that all about? I honestly don't know the answer to that. I, I do not see under you know, maximum fuel con conditions and the correct intense prevailing winds, why you couldn't make a direct flight like that. Very uh, frankly, I strongly suspect the stop in Hawaii was to genuflect uh, at the chair of Commander-in-Chief Pacific, Commander-in-Chief Pacific Fleet, uh, and the commander of the Pacific Air Force that are all based in Hickam. And so yeah. I think it was for them and the State Department that we stopped there because it yeah. was only a couple of hours. Yeah, well, that makes sense. And uh, I'm, I'm going to have to look in, and we'll probably have some Air Force experts uh, experts on the C-141 that might uh, uh, set us straight on the, on the range of the C-141. I would think it would be able to make that trip. At, flying today between uh, Asia and California is an easy flight. Although it's a little long, um, there's a lot of planes that can make the flight. Um, stopping in Hawaii, though, was pretty cool for you because you had some good friends that came out to Hickam Air Force Base in Hawaii to meet with you. So t tell us a little bit about that, if you could. Well, I had been uh, stationed with Bob Richards uh, from uh, Mass Maritime Academy, Massachusetts, in Beeville, Texas. We had been instructors together. And we had kind of grown up flying together. I was, in fact, a, a member of his wedding party when he married Joyce. And he happened to be stationed there uh, on staff living in Ford Island in Hawaii when we came through. And I did not know that, of course. I'd been out of touch for six years. And they were standing there. So I had a, a very welcome reunion for uh, a couple of hours with Bob and Joyce while all the other people were sort of rattling around uh, being abused and used and uh, not getting very much rest at all. So it was a yeah. good time for me. And, and Bob Kramer, um, or Bob Richards, rather, he, he actually had a pretty cool job there in Hawaii. Uh, he was, wasn't he in charge of laying the Pacific uh, Sosis cables at that time? He, he had oversight over the uh, Sosis uh, cables in the Pacific Ocean. And uh, because he had a, a master maritime uh, certificate, a master's certificate, uh, he used to ride the contract boats that were laying cable and stuff like that. And some way in their infinite wisdom, the Navy decided they were going to pass Bob over for promotion to captain. 
and the board reported out his name was not selected for captain, which meant he had to go home. And his admiral went ballistic and said that Bob was the only guy that knew where all the cables were in the Pacific Ocean, and they couldn't <laughs> let him go home. So they reconvened the board and selected Bob, and he made captain. Good, good for him. Uh, fantastic. So after a short visit there in Hawaii with, uh, with uh, Bob and Joyce Richards, um, who, by the way, we went back to visit soon after that, uh, they invited us out to their house in Hawaii, and I think you had us back out in Hawaii within a matter of a couple months after you got home, didn't you? That was a good Easter. That was Easter of 1973. We were in Hawaii, and you ate half of the pineapple in the Hawaiian Islands. There you go, and it was pretty good also. Um, so, um, after that great visit with the Richards there in Hawaii, you loaded back up on the aircraft and you finished the trip flying from Hawaii to Travis Air Force Base. And you, you included a picture here, uh, of San Francisco. So what, uh, when, as you were arriving into California, what was one of the most, uh, uh, spectacular things that you saw on the skyline as, as the plane approached? Well, we saw uh, what we thought was something that had uh, been stolen from Egypt. We saw the Transamerica Pyramid Building sticking up in the middle of our beautiful San Francisco, and we wondered what in the name of heavens had these people done in our absence. That wasn't there when you left? That was not there when we left. We didn't do it. We actually made the pilot make one more circle, so each one of us could look at it and, I guess, admire it. Okay. And so um, you ended up landing. You had landed at Traverse Air Force Base, and, and you got off the plane there. And uh, we did not, our family was not there at Travis Air Force Base. You landed, and we were 30 or 40 minutes across town at Oak Knoll Naval Hospital over in Oakland waiting for you uh, to get together there. Um, but you got off the plane there at uh, Travis Air Force Base, and you did have a couple of friends that came to meet you right there at the airfield, uh, including... And, and I didn't know this. Uh, I was just actually reading this morning some of the notes that you had made earlier. Uh, Ev Alvarez, uh, another former POW. So he had been released earlier than you um, because he had been captured earlier than you. So he had been out for a while. And so was he out there in California and, and in the hospital also and been released to, and he just came to see you? Yeah, Ev, Ev is a very... Uh Amazing guy and a very good friend. Ev was the first naval aviator that was uh, captured alive in North Vietnam and uh, the longest-held aviator in North Vietnam. Colonel Jim Thompson uh, down in South Vietnam was the longest-held uh, living prisoner. Uh, so uh, Ev Alvarez had some status. Now, remember we had uh, said your mother was saying that no one would talk to us and that I was being shunned. Well, Ev had special status amongst us all and amongst the Navy himself in that he was the first one down. He was there all by himself for six months or more, and uh, he kept the faith, and he came home all in one piece with the rest of us. He didn't try and sneak home early or anything else. Uh, also, uh, Ted Kaufman, who had been a shipmate of mine in Beeville, Texas, and again in uh, VA-94, the Shrikes, 
he had the reputation of being one of the meanest guys in the valley. And if anyone would mouth off about a traitor, it certainly would be Ted Kaufman. And so they had those two guys be there. And you guys weren't there by my request. I had asked your mother, would she please not expose you to the press? I had had extremely miserable experiences with the press and the media. They had uh, ruined my name. They had second-guessed me in prison. They had not supported my country. They had not supported my government, my president. And I didn't want them exploiting my family any further. So I asked you guys to wait for me in the hospital. Well, little did you know, we had already been exposed to the press quite a bit as they were they already started a uh, documentary, a, and they had been filming that while you were... Uh, before you got home, I know that. I don't know exactly when they started it, but that was already ongoing. But you did you know that at that time? Well, I had no idea of the uh, uh, the good work that your mother and May Rose Evans and uh, other ladies had done in the Bay Area to try and uh, expose to the American public uh, what the Berkeley peaceniks were like and what was happening to us and seeking out uh, the press that I was trying to avoid. But God love your mother. She just acceded to my wishes. <laughs> All right. Well, so after landing at, at there at Travis Air Force Base, you reunited with uh, a lot of your friends uh, there at the airfield, and they saw you. And then how long did it take you to get over to Oak Knoll Naval Hospital where, where we were waiting for you there? Uh, the actual trip took 45 minutes, police escort. Okay. And uh, from the time I landed uh, at Travis until I got to the front steps of Okno, it was about an hour and a half. I'd been on the ground in the States for an hour and a half. Okay. And I remember we, we were all waiting for you there in, in your hospital room, probably up on the fifth or sixth floor. I can't remember exactly. But we saw your car pull up, uh, the whole convoy. Saw you get out. You made a quick speech to a lot of people waiting below, and we, me, and all the uh, all the uh, other kids were sticking our heads out the window, uh, making funny faces and making fools of ourselves, I guess. And um, you made your speech, and we had a lot of our friends and neighbors down there. And then you ended up coming coming up to the room, and we had our first picture as a family taken uh, right about probably within an hour of you coming up to the room. I remember that picture. I got it blown up out in the garage uh, uh, that we uh, celebrated with one of the, for one of the homecoming events. Uh, that's a pretty cool picture that I'll treasure forever. Um, so you, you've now arrived, you're home, reunited with the family. You are at uh, Oak Knoll Naval Hospital. How long uh, do you remember? How long were you an inpatient there at the hospital, and then then you moved to an outpatient status as well while they were doing all kinds of medical work and tests on you? Do, do you remember about the length of time for that? Well, I was actually listed in my orders uh, as being uh, in outpatient status in the hospital until 30 June. The best of my memory was that I spent about 30 days in the hospital, but I was home on St. Patrick's Day on uh, the 17th of March for the 
our traditional annual St. Patrick's Day party. And that was my first overnight at home. Yeah, so I remember that one, the big St. Patrick's Day party that we had at our house um, in uh, March of 1973. Um, that was the first time you got to meet Scott Blakey, who ended up writing uh, the book about you later, and we'll talk a little bit more about that, Prisoner at War. And Scott also was involved in the PBS project. It was actually... Um, uh, Scott was actually an employee, I believe, of KQED in San Francisco. And Scott and a team of people made a documentary that was called 2,251 Days. And so Scott was at that party, and that was the first time you met Scott. Do you remember, I remember this, do you remember what he was driving when he pulled up to our house that day? Oh, do I ever remember him? He ran around and... <laughs> In bib overalls, carried a purse and drove a flowered Volkswagen van. Oh, that, that and that's a classic. I love that Volkswagen van and, and love Scott Blakey. Um, what a terrific guy. And and I think I mentioned this to you, or, or did I not? I just found out a couple of months ago one of Scott's daughters lives 10 minutes from here. You, you mentioned that and said we'd get together after all this. Yeah foolishness gets over we we absolutely got to get together uh, that what a small world that scott still lives out in san francisco but he's got a daughter living 10 minutes from us so we we definitely need to get together with him uh or or with his daughter susan is her name so um after all your medical work's done and uh you you uh are ready or, or starting to get ready to go back to work what did that process look like did the navy come to you and ask you what you want to do do you want to get out of the navy do you want to continue if you do want to continue in the navy what do you want to do what what did that whole process look like for you well operational homecoming i think was the navy's finest hour in in our association with the united states navy and what they wanted to do with us was to take each one of us and put us in an academic environment, a war college, a civilian college, some sort of a place where we could decompress, get some time with our family, and they could observe us to see just how nuts we were. <laughs> uh, in reality, our detailers uh, took over from the political admirals and said, do you want to be in shore duty? Do you want to go back to sea? Do you want to... Uh, get out. Do you want to retire at this point? Um, do you want to be in fast track and try and make admiral, or do you just want to fly again? They gave us these kind of choices. And my choice was, uh, if you want to go to sea, we have two squadrons for you. There's one waiting for you in Hong Kong. Uh, the other one is working up in Lemoore, California. And uh, you'll leave in about two months. Now, I took a look. I've been gone from you guys for seven years, and if I was going to turn around and tell, tell you that I was going to leave for another four years at sea, I didn't think that was going to happen. Uh, I went and retrained in the A-4 aircraft and got my instrument ticket back down at Lemoore in the TA-4 and found out uh, a sad lesson was that I was just even with the airplane. I used to pride myself in being well ahead of the airplane. 
and in tail hook aviation, if you're just even with your airplane, you're going to be dead or you're going to kill somebody. And I was smart enough to realize that I was over the hill as far as tail hook aviation went. So I chose the shore uh, establishment route. The Navy okay. was good in that regard, Pat. Yeah, and I think you, obviously, I think you made a really good decision for our family after being gone for so many years. If you had gone into an operational status again and been stationed on a carrier, uh, that would not have been the best thing for our family. Ultimately, I think it probably ended up costing you your ability to make Admiral because you didn't have an operational command, though, right? Uh, yeah, I did, but I, I think I always uh, smile when you say that. Admiral was not in the cards in my day for a naval aviation cadet. A naval aviation cadet could look forward to making lieutenant commander and serving 20 years, and if he was lucky, make commander and get command of a squadron. It was very rare for a naval aviation cadet uh, to get into flag rank. So that was never in my dream, but I do appreciate you thinking that I was worthy of that. <laughs> um, well, um, so you ended up, um, the, you, you chose shore duty, and you ended up working at Lockheed Missile and Space Corporation. So can, tell me a little bit about, about that, about the job, what you did, and uh, who you worked for there. Uh, the tour that I had at the Naval Plant Representative's office at Lockheed was in the factory that made uh, Polaris, Poseidon, Trident submarine uh, missiles. And I would, my billet, very frankly, was as executive officer. I had yet to punch that uh, ticket. I had been a department head. Now I needed to be an XO before I could be a CO. So I was punching an executive officer's job. And... Uh, an exec, no matter where he is, what kind of a command he's in, his job is to take all the flack for the skipper and make sure that the skipper is able to do his job, get the resources, and, and keep trouble off his back. And I didn't know anything about missiles, and I didn't really care that much about submarines, but I learned an awful lot from the civilian management uh, and also from Captain Bill Abbott, who was my skipper. Yeah. And re really great guy also. So um, tell me a little bit about, so when you first came home, you, you really didn't know that the press had kind of already gotten with mom and they had started working on this documentary about our family and about you, unbeknownst to you, uh, you because you weren't even home yet. But they were coming over to our house. They were shooting movie video. They were coming to school with 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 me and 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 all the other kids. And they were shooting video at school of us. So they were documenting this whole homecoming. And you hadn't known about it at this time. And you had this mistrust for the press and for the media. So how long was it after you got home before mom talked to you and convinced you that the people that she was engaged with and, and allowing to do this with the family were trustworthy and, and were doing the right thing? Did that take a lot of convincing for her to do with you? Not really, Pat. Um she had me squared away by St. Patrick's Day. She alerted to me uh, as to what was going on. She realized the intensity of my uh, anger and distrust, anger towards and distrust of 
the medium. Uh, she knew what my reaction to long hair and flowered vans were uh, would be. And you she know just, that flowered van that Scott had it it to I mean it would be a collector's item today. It would make you a rich man if you had one of those today. Uh, I do without the money, pal. <laughs> just like. Unfortunately, uh, due to the lack of barber attention right now, I'm starting to get long hair. But uh, I'll do without the long hair in the van. Thank you very much. Well, I got. It. I just want to say, Scott Blakey, I got your back, my friend. I love that van. I think it's classic. And, yeah. and anyway, why why did I do it? Because yeah, uh, if you notice, uh, Stratton men have a habit of marrying people that are smarter than they are. Yeah, true point. And uh, yeah, your mother was smarter than I am. And uh, she said these were good people, uh, as funny as they might look. They were the only press people that were supporting her and May Rose Evans in uh, their efforts to take care of us while we were in prison. And basically, she talked my language. She said, you owe them one. Yeah, okay. So uh, they went ahead and uh, they finished the, uh, the, the film project led by Scott Blakey. Um, I think they finished it and aired it on TV, including on PBS in 1974, 2,251 days. And then Scott, while he was working uh, on that film project, or was it after that he approached you uh, with the book concept? When did that happen? Uh, Scott uh, approached me after the film was completed. Uh, the local people that he worked for, KQED uh, Television, had um, played that film on the 4th of July in uh, 1973. And then it was played nationally. 74. It was played nationally in 74. It was played locally in 73. Uh, okay. I didn't know they finished it that summer. Well, basically, if you, they call them a trailer or stuff like that, okay. it wasn't the completed project. Okay. And so about 74, when things were winding up, is when he approached me about writing some kind of a book. Okay. And when he approached you about writing a book, actually, he wanted you to write it at first. And That is correct. And he said, write a book. And you have a story there. And your response was, no. I'm on active duty. I'm in the Navy, and that's my life, and I'm not writing a book. Okay. And so, uh, long story short, Scott wound up writing the book, correct? Scott said, I have uh, hours and hours of tape recording backing up all the film. Can I use that? And I write a book. Yeah. And I said, go for it. Yeah. Okay. And... So it's Easter, and we're supposed to be enjoying ourselves today, and I owe you a drink really soon, and everybody else is outside, and they're already starting without us, so we got to go and catch up to them. Uh, but before we do that, um, I want to make one thing really clear. You had asked me to make sure we discuss this point in, in some detail before we finish this episode, and um, that the point is this. The Vietnam War ended, and even to this day, there's all kinds of conspiracy theories out there that some POWs were left behind. The Vietnamese still have them. The Russians kept them. They brought them over to the Soviet Union. You name it. There's all kinds of stuff out there. And 
there there was a really uh, sophisticated, deep effort by the United States government and by the United States military to make sure that didn't happen. So can you explain a little bit about that, Dad, and how sophisticated and how detailed they were on that? Um, as far as the, the, the government's de attention to detail was what we already touched on, our debriefing officers were talking to us before we even reached cruising altitude when we left Gialam Airport and asking us to dump our memory bank. Each one of us was charged with memorizing, memorizing 25 to 50 names. And they asked us to do it about every couple of hours just in case we were forgetting something. They didn't realize how locked in we had those names. Right. And uh, that was our first indication. That was their primary concern. They weren't even ask, asking about our health. They were looking for that information. That was the most important thing to them. And all the way through uh, our debriefing, there was a concentration on trying to find information that would help them locate what had happened to people that they had not come home, whose names they had not been able to attach to a picture or something. So as far as I'm concerned, uh, the government was an honest broker in that effort. Uh, there are people who claim that we were instructed by the government on what to say and how to say it. Uh, people who say that are ignorant because <laughs> you can't tell a former POW to do anything. <laughs> we, can, we can't even agree amongst ourselves on anything. It, it became the nature after all those years. And if you want someone to dig in their heels, a POW, tell them to do something. Just ask your mother about that. And they're not going to do it. They'll do the opposite. That's right? the opposite. You bet. Because that's how we survived. If the enemy wants it, you do the opposite. Yeah. Okay. Well, Dad, thanks for doing this uh, today. Um, I appreciate it. I love you. I love you a lot. Well, I love you, my friend. And uh, we in this country are going to get through this Mickey Mouse we're going through now. And we're going to be better for it. Yes, we will. Uh, can I pa uh, pour you a tall bourbon and uh, join the group outside? As long as you don't put too much ice in it. I will not put too much ice. Bless All you, right. my son. <laughs> Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast. We've got more episodes coming out soon. If you want to learn more about the story, be sure to visit and like our Facebook page, The Yankee Air Pirate. The page has lots of cool pictures and video of the people, places, and things we discuss in our podcast series. Please be sure to rate and review our podcast on your podcast player. That's an easy way to help us spread these stories. And don't forget, anyone can contact us with questions or feedback by emailing us at theyankeeairpirate at gmail.com. That's the Yankee Air Pirate, all one word, at gmail.com. We appreciate all our listeners. Semper Fi.